you would take your Bibles with me and turn to the last book of the Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, part of Revelation chapter 2, actually the last verses of the chapter 2. If you'd like to use the Bibles and the chairs around you, you'll find our passage today on page 1029. Continuing our study of this book, the book of Revelation, which was a letter, and within this letter... There are some many letters that were written by Jesus himself to a number of different churches. And we've been working our way through the last few weeks in these letters that Jesus wrote. And today we come to the letter that he wrote to the church in Thyatira. And so I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 18 down through verse 29. These are Jesus' words and he says... And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and he who keeps my works until the end to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, are, we know that you are the same Father in heaven who granted all authority to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the same Father in heaven who caused this letter to be written and passed on to John by the Holy Spirit and written down in such a way that we could have it and read it. And so we pray for that same Holy Spirit to be at work here, even in these very moments, opening our eyes and helping us to see wonderful and helpful things from this portion of your word. Would you do it, Father, for the glory of your name above everything else, and also for the good and the help and the building up of your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The little town that uh, Stephanie and I grew up in, in Indiana, I say little, it had, uh, when we were growing up, about 35,000 people. And so if you're here from... Rochester, then you, that's a smaller town. But I know many of you are from smaller towns, and so you think of 35,000 people, that's a big town. But for us, it was a little town, a town of 35,000 people. And the church that I attended as I was growing up as a child 
was one of the most beautiful churches in the entire city. It was built in 1906. It was paid for largely, almost exclusively, by a donation from someone who had grown up in Richmond and who had moved away, an entrepreneurial kind of guy, and had made lots and lots of money and had moved to New York, but wanted to help establish some uh, core things in his hometown. And so he helped to fund and start the hospital that still is in existence today. And he also gave $300,000 to start this church that I was going to as a child. Today, that would be the equivalent of about $7.5 million. It was a significant donation. And what they built with those resources was this incredible building. Scottish, Gothic, limestone architecture. 62 Tiffany stained glass windows inside. A fan-vaulted ceiling that was at least 50 feet high, carved mahogany wood trimmed throughout the sanctuary, and a massive pipe organ that was built by Hook and Hastings. Now, I got a little bit of information about that organ. This means absolutely nothing to me in terms of understanding what this means, but I know it does to some of you who are musically trained. This this incredible pipe organ had three, has three manuals, five divisions, and 40 ranks of pipes, 70 draw knobs affecting 67 stops, 21 Deegan chimes, and a bell tower with 14 bells inside. It's a massive centerpiece of the sanctuary and was an incredible sound as you worshipped in that room. This church started in 1906 as a church plant, but it began to grow and it flourished. It had a significant ministry in the city. It was a ministry of love and faith and service. But over time, just like the denomination of which it is a part, it began to slip away from both the truth and the grace of the gospel. The focus of the church shifted Not to unimportant things, but to things that were less important than the key truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. The denomination of which it's a part has lost two-thirds of its people and churches over the last 50 years. And although this church had good Christian folk that were in it until its very last day, that church also began to slowly die. November 5th, 2017, they officially closed their doors, closed the church, and dissolved the church 111 years after it began. If you went to our hometown, you could drive down the street and you would see the building as it still stands, an empty shell, waiting for somebody to buy it. It's really kind of sad, actually, if you think about it. Especially for those last few dedicated, committed believers in Christ who couldn't make the church turn around. Now, I'm not going to claim to know the exact reasons for the demise of that church. There were probably lots of reasons. But here is one thing that I know. Jesus loves his church. He loves his people. He is passionate for them and he will not tolerate anything that is not right and true and good and beautiful in his church. 
We have an example of that today in our passage. We're looking at these letters that were written in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These these letters that were written by Jesus to these seven different churches in the area of Asia Minor in the first century. And what Jesus had to say to these churches all the way back then was so important that Jesus made sure that the words that he spoke were given to John so that he could give it to those churches and so that it was written down so that we could have it in front of us today to learn from. Several weeks ago, we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus, a church that was really good at doctrine. They had their I's dotted and their T's crossed with regard to their theology. They were strong in their theological orthodoxy, but they didn't love like they were supposed to. We also looked at the church to the uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna. And there Jesus had no uh, critique of them, but he was encouraging them and, and telling them that, yes, you are dealing with significant persecution for being Christians, but a greater persecution is coming and you need to persevere until the end. And then last Sunday, we looked at the letter to the church in Pergamum. And that letter told us that that the people there at that church were tolerating false teaching and accommodating themselves to the pagan culture. Today, we're looking at the letter to the church of Thyatira. And although it's a very similar message that was given to the church in Pergamum, it's still worthy of our attention today because the context, the situation of that church is different. And it's also interesting that this is the longest of the letters that Jesus wrote to these churches. So what I want us to look at today is to understand a little bit about the context of that church. So we'll look at the place and the people that that letter was written to. And then we'll look at the problem that Jesus raises that is going on in that church and the solution that he provides to them. And then as Jesus does so often, we'll look at the promises that he gives to God's people who will persevere to the end. So first of all, what do we know about the place and the people? First, the place. Uh, It's really important that we understand some of the context of this city in the first century and what was going on. It's unlike the three other cities that we've talked about already, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum. uh, Thyatira was not a significant town in almost anybody's estimation. It was small. It was probably about 25,000 people, uh, a fraction of the size of the other churches or the other cities that we've looked at. It was not known as being politically significant. It was not known as being culturally significant. It was not known really for much at all. Christians in this town were not dealing with the significant level and pressure of persecution that was going on in those other cities that we have looked at. The Roman Empire was pressuring Christians in those other cities to give allegiance to the emperor, to Caesar. But here in Thyatira, that same pressure had not arrived to that degree yet. And yet the Christians there were still dealing with some suffering. What this city was known for were their trade guilds. Now what's a trade guild? A trade guild is a a gathering, a grouping of merchants, of craftsmen of all one trade. And they... Uh, bound themselves together so that they could practice their trade well and grow and mature in their trade and sell themselves in the community. And this city was known as having all kinds of trade guilds. 
painters and tanners and potters and coppersmiths and cobblers and the biggest guild of all that had the most significance and the most influence was the guild of the bronze workers that will come up later as we remind ourselves of what Jesus said about himself. These guilds were very powerful in the city. To belong to one of these guilds meant everything. If you didn't belong to one of these guilds, it meant that your business was sure to struggle. It meant that you would likely deal with uh, financial ruin and instability most of your life, perhaps even living a life of poverty, being dependent on other people and other things in the city. And it also meant that you would be isolated socially. Most of the connection was which guild you were in, and those were the, the social gatherings that you would go to and the people that you would spend with. So... Being a part of the guilds was incredibly important, not just so that you had the sense of being able to get your business off and running, but is also just in terms of having a sense of social connection with people. However, to be a part of these guilds also meant that you had to participate in various guild practices and rituals. Each guild, because this was the first century and it was heavily influenced by the Romans and the Greeks, each of the guilds had a patron god, a god that was looked to to provide uh, the resources and the security and the protection for each guild. And each guild would have ceremonies and worship services involving sacrifices to that false god. There would also be feasts involved that you would go to as a part of the guild where you would eat the meat that had been sacrificed to those false gods. And it often also involved drunkenness and sexual immorality and prostitution. And if you were a part of the guild, you had to go to those ceremonies, those rituals. You had to participate. You had to be involved with them. And so in this town, with all of these guilds and all of that pressure, is a little church. And it's full of Christian people that were seeking to live out the Christian faith in that difficult place. We don't know how the church got started, although in Acts chapter 16, we read about a woman who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the name of Lydia. And she was a trader of purple cloths, and she was from Thyatira. It's likely that Lydia may have gone back and been part of the core group that got this church started. And notice how Jesus describes these people in verse 19. He says, I know you. I know who you are and I know your good works, your works that are full of love and faith and service and how you are patiently enduring the challenges of living in Thyatira. This was a group of people that were believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and they were living their lives together and they were living their lives in the community of that city seeking to evidence their faith in their good works. They were loving the Lord and they were loving their neighbors and they were serving one another. And evidently there were Christians who were dealing with what it meant to live faithfully in the midst of these guilds. Choosing not to participate in them. They are enduring patiently the difficulties. The great cost that would have been 
uh, that would have costed them by not being a part of those guilds. And, And notice what else Jesus says at the end of verse 19. Their latter works exceed the first. This is not like the church in Ephesus who had lost their first love. This is a church full of people who are growing in their faith. Whose, whose evidence of their love for the Lord and their evidence for their love for their neighbors is greater now than it was when they first came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are maturing. They are growing as Christian people. This is a wonderful little church. But there is a problem. And we read those dreaded words that we've seen in some of these other letters in chapter 2, verse 20. Jesus told them, but I have this against you. And, And as we talked about last week, you can imagine being in the congregation that would have had this letter read to them for the first time. These words from their Savior. These words from the Sovereign One. The words that were saying, you are doing a great job in many ways. You are maturing in your faith. You are loving. You are serving. You have great faith. And yet, I have this against you, Jesus says. You're tolerating that woman Jezebel. Now, who was that and what's that all about? If you're not familiar with the Bible story, the biblical story, especially from the Old Testament, that name may not... Uh, mean a lot to you, although it is a name that even in our own culture we sometimes talk about various people as being Jezebels. It's never, you, uh, you have a sense that it's not a complimentary term. It goes back to the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 2 Kings chapter 9. We read about this lady named Jezebel. She was not one of the Israelites. She was not part of God's people. She was actually a, a princess from the area called Sidon, which, was in, which is in present-day Lebanon. She came from a pagan, unbelieving family that practiced pagan religion and pagan religious rituals. And we read in 1 Kings that in the mid-800s B.C., the king of Israel was a, na- a guy by the name of Ahab. And if you know anything about the story of the Bible, you know Ahab was not a good king. He was not a faithful king. He, he did not do a good job of pointing God's people to the Lord, constantly leading them astray. And we read that Ahab decided to take Jezebel as his wife, which was a direct violation of God's word. So he brought her into the palace. She became the queen. And with Jezebel came all of her religious practices, her pagan rituals and pagan religions. And we read right after we're told that she was made Ahab's wife, that both Ahab and Jezebel brought in the Baal and Ashereth poles. It was a false religion, false pagan religion where there were sacrifices made even of live human beings. And there were, faith, uh, there were feasts that were involved and there was sacrificing of, of meat and of people to these false gods. And there was prostitution involved in, in following these false religions. And Jezebel in the Old Testament and Ahab in the Old Testament taught God's people that it was okay to engage in those things and to be involved in those practices and to worship these false gods. We read in 2 Kings chapter 9 that Jezebel ended up dying a horrific and violent and gruesome death as she was thrown out of the palace window by her own servants 
and then eaten by dogs. Now, here's Jesus all these years later writing to this little church in Asia Minor and he tells them that they were tolerating this woman in their, their church in Thyatira, Jezebel. Now, it's very likely that that was not her real name. Jesus is simply connecting her back to the Old Testament Jezebel. And read what, we, uh, what, what Jesus says here, that she called herself a prophetess. Now, notice Jesus doesn't say she was a prophetess. He says that she called herself one. She was a false prophetess. She was te- teaching and seducing Jesus' servants in Thyatira that it was okay to practice sexual immorality and to eat the food that had been sacrificed to idols. That's what he says in the end of verse 20. And we see in verse 24 that she was also teaching what became known as the deep things of God. And Jesus is saying they aren't the deep things of God. They're the deep things of the evil one, of Satan himself. So what does all this mean? What is the problem that Jesus is addressing? The Christians in this little church in Thyatira were trying to live faithful Christian lives. They were not participating in these guild practices and the guilds themselves. And as a result, they were dealing with incredibly difficult living circumstances. They were enduring financial hardship and instability. They were dealing with social isolation and ridicule. And here comes this this false teacher into this little church and she begins to tell them it's okay to go ahead and participate in the guilds and be involved in those things. It'll make your life easier. It'll be easier and more comfortable for you. It's okay to be in those guilds and participate in those rituals rituals and go to the worship services and participate in the feasts and eat the meats and practice sexual morality. And maybe she would say, just keep in mind your faith in God. If it's true for you and your heart, then you could do those things and it'll be okay. And the problem that Jesus was addressing here in these verses was twofold. The first and primary problem that he was addressing was that these Christians were tolerating this false teacher in the church. There are possibly some indicators here that the leaders of the church were trying to get her out because we're told that she had been called to repent. It's likely maybe the leaders in the church were trying to get her out. But And Jesus obviously gave her time to repent and she refused. But the Christians in Thyatira were not rooting her out completely from that church. And that's the first and the primary problem that Jesus has with them is they were tolerating it. They were allowing her to be there. They were allowing her to teach these things. But also the second problem is what we see in verses 22 and 23. It's not just that she was teaching these things, but she was actually winning some people over to what she was saying. The word there for children most likely means that she was gaining followers. She was gaining people who were agreeing with her and were beginning to practice in some of these things. I want you to notice, before we move on to see what the solution is that Jesus provides, that Jesus is not going to let false teaching and immoral living go on in his church indefinitely. He is too passionate and he is too jealous for his church, for his people. And he makes this sobering statement of judgment that would come onto Jezebel and for those who would willingly and knowingly follow her. 
After warnings and pleadings for her and her followers to repent, Jesus said he would step in and bring them to an end. We read these hard things in verses 22 and 23 that they will experience sickness and great tribulation and eventually even death. And all the commentators that I was looking at this week all almost said exactly the same thing, that we must resist the temptation to over-spiritualize those things. Jesus is talking about real judgment that was coming. Temporal judgment. And it's not the only time that we see temporal kinds of punishment in the scriptures on sin and infidelity that's left unchecked. In Acts chapter 5, we read about Ananias and Sapphira who died after they lied and cheated the Lord and his church. And in 1 Corinthians 11, we read about the people in Corinth, some who had died because they were recklessly and selfishly abusing the Lord's Supper. Jesus says that he is so passionate for the purity of his church, for the sanctity of his church, that he will not let her continue. Before we move on, I just want to say something here about the need to be careful. Because on the one hand, we have to remember the story of Job and Job's friends. Who when Job was being afflicted with all kinds of things, he was a righteous man, but he was being afflicted by all kinds of different difficulties. Difficulties that would make us melt into the ground if we had to deal with all of them at the same time like he did. And he had these three friends that came to him and began to tell him what was the problem and the sin that was in his life that he needed to repent of. And over and over and over again, they came to him and they were wrong. They weren't right. They didn't know. They didn't understand. And God chastises them for even trying to tell Job what the problem was and what he needed to repent of. And so on the one hand, we have to be careful when we see God's judgment or we see suffering or we see difficulties because we don't know. We have to be tempered by what he told us in the book of Job. But on the other hand, what we have here is a reminder that God is abundantly gracious and patient with his church, calling those who would lead God's people away to repent. But he is also passionate and protective of the purity and the sanctity of his church. And he brings consequences on those who would lead his people astray and who are unrepentant. Now, if you're reading this letter for the first time as the church in which it was originally written to, you can imagine the heaviness of hearing Jesus' words, I've got this against you. And perhaps those false teachers were actually in the room when this was being written or when it was being read. You can imagine the heaviness that it must have felt. And so what's the, what's the solution? What's the encouragement? What's the call that Jesus gives to the Christians in Thyatira and to us as we might deal with similar temptations. Well, I think the first solution is, Jesus says, hold fast. That's what he says in verses 24 and 25. Verse 25 in particular, he says, Only hold fast what you have until I come. Here's the first solution for God's people. Hold fast. Hold fast to what you have. Don't... Follow, he's saying to these people, don't follow Jezebel's false teaching. Don't believe her. Don't give in to the idea that it's okay to practice those things as a professing and believing Christian. Don't get yourself involved in those sinful activities that are connected with those guilds, even if 
it is incredibly costly to you. I was reading some words of a pastor friend of mine who was reflecting recently on the story of the ending of slavery in the British Empire in the early 19th century. I know that many of you know that story and you know the story of the Clapham sect. It was a a group of Anglican pastors and elders and church leaders, some uh, by the name of Henry Venn and William Wilberforce and Henry Thornton, under the influence of uh, John Newton as well. And these, these people that, that worked in the British Parliament over many, many years, over many, many different challenges and difficulties to bring an end to the slave trade in the British Empire, to have it outlawed. But my friend was pointing out that as the historians talk about what was happening during that time, there was so much more than simply the influence of the Clapham sect men. It literally took hundreds and hundreds of ordinary Christian folk in the British Empire that said, following the Lord God Almighty, we will no longer allow this to be the case in the British Empire. Where they walked away from what would have been very lucrative and very financially stabilizing situations in order to no longer allow the slave trade a foothold in the British Empire. It would have cost them significantly, personally, in their families, in their well-beings, in their futures. And yet, as God's people, they were committed to the truth of the sanctity of human life because of all human beings being made in the image of the Creator. There is no question that it would have been immensely costly for them to do that, but they were willing to pay the cost. Jesus is calling his people here to hold fast, to hold on to the truth and to the gospel, to believe and to live out that truth in faithful obedience in their lives, even if it is costly. Jesus says, put your love for me and your love of neighbor and your obedience to God's word over and above even your own comfort and ease in life. What does that look like? Well, maybe it looks like not compromising on a biblical Christian ethic in your workplace. Even if that means that you don't get the promotion. Or you don't get something published. Or you get fired. It it looks like not compromising on the Bible's instructions on finding a godly, Christ-loving spouse, even if it means a season of hard waiting. Young people. It means not cheating. In school, even if that means you don't get as good of a grade as people that are around you, even if it means that you may not get into the college of your first choice, it means enduring a thorn in the flesh of a season of pain and suffering, even perhaps a long season, even perhaps a lifelong season of pain and suffering without despairing without casting 
your doubts on the Lord without saying He doesn't exist. It looks like not going along with what our culture tells us is fine and good in terms of getting sexual and relational satisfaction in this life, even if it means self-denial and delayed satisfaction. Our greatest witness in this world as God's people is not compromising on love or obedience to the Lord, but holding fast to faith and obedience, even if it means there's great cost in doing so. That's the first solution that Jesus gives them and gives us. The second one is even more obvious. It's what he says essentially in verse 20. He tells them that they were tolerating this teaching. And so by, uh, by implication, what he's saying, don't tolerate these things in the church. It's not only about giving in to those things, but he's also speaking to the church itself. And he's saying, don't tolerate that teaching in your midst. Root it out. Don't allow a Jezebel to gain foothold in the church, which if you are a member of this church, you've actually taken a vow for. You've taken a vow to promise to study the purity and the peace of the church. He's telling them, hold fast, be willing to pay the cost. Don't tolerate those things in your church. And at the same time, he also tells them, don't overreact. Now, where do I get that from? Well, you look back at verses 24 and 25. He says, to the rest of you in Thyatira, you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, I do not lay on you any other Burden. I think Jesus knows that as God's people, we have, a, we have a tendency to swing to extremes. And so as he's writing to these people and he's telling them about the problem that's in their midst and he's calling them to root it out and to not follow it and to not tolerate it, he doesn't want them to swing to the opposite extreme, which might look like what? Retreating. Being afraid of living in Thyatira, of talking to people that are in those guilds, of talking to people who are, who are, who are going to and involving themselves in those, those rituals and those things of, uh, uh, that are against God's word. He doesn't want them to go hide somewhere and try to keep themselves pure from within like they could keep all of these bad things out. And he also is not wanting them to, to create any man-made laws in addition to God's word and to try to hedge around themselves. He says, no, don't overreact. I'm not putting any other burden on you. If you are living faithfully, just hold fast to the truth that you've had from the beginning, he says. Now, this is the solution that Jesus provides, but I think even as he knows how heavy the problem is and what it might have been to, to live in that city in that time, and also because he knows how difficult it would be to actually do these solutions and to live this way, as he does with each of his letters, he finishes with some promises. Some promises to encourage them and to spur them on and to motivate them to live for him. And so what are those promises that he gives them? The promises to those who conquer, those who will persevere to the end. He gives them two of these promises here at the end of the passage. The first is in verses 26 and 27. He says, 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now that should be familiar to you. Not because I'm assuming that you've memorized Old Testament passages in uh, your childhood, but because we read that passage earlier in today's service. He's quoting from Psalm 2. And isn't it interesting, even as he points out, in Psalm 2, it's the Father giving authority to the Son. Jesus even says that. Even as the Father has given me authority, he says there in Revelation. In, in Psalm 2, it's the Father giving this authority and power to reign and to rule to the Son. And now Jesus is taking that as He can do. And He's saying, this applies to you as God's people. The authority that my Father has given me, the power to rule and to reign, I am giving to you who conquer and persevere to the end. In other words, to God's people in Thyatira who are experiencing isolation and ridicule and difficulty, who are being despised, Jesus is saying, hang in there. A day is coming when you will share in my glory and power and authority. What an incredible encouragement this would have been to God's people then. Uh, he knows that being faithful will be costly, but he's saying it's worth it. Be faithful. Hold fast. Whatever you are called to give up in this life, whatever you may not get in this life, is going to far be outweighed by what is coming for those who persevere to the end. And as even as... Elder A.C. was praying in his prayer, and also a reference in Romans, we have a promised eternal weight of glory that far surpasses anything that we might have to give up here in this life. That's the first promise. The second promise is in verse 28. He says, And, as if that wasn't enough, I will give him the morning star. Now, what does that mean? Well, thankfully, you don't have to just rest on my telling you what that means, if you'll turn to the very last chapter of the Bible, the very last chapter of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. If you're in those red Bibles, it's on page 1042. John gets this vision of Jesus returning, the second coming of Christ. And he also hears Jesus speaking in various ways. And in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, this is what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What is Jesus reminding the Christians in Thyatira? Persevere to the end. I'm giving you myself. Jesus promises to his people, persevere, hold fast. I'm giving myself to you. And notice how Jesus describes himself at the beginning of this letter in verse 18. He is the son of God. That is, he is the second person of the Trinity and he has all authority and the power of his father in heaven that has been bestowed upon him. He is sovereign and in control. He is ruling and reigning even when we don't feel like he is or don't see that he is. 
And we also, Jesus says he is also one with eyes like a flame of fire. He sees all. He knows all. He is omniscient in all things. There is nothing that is hid from him. And as we've talked about in previous weeks, John, on many occasions in Revelation, references the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And it's almost certainly the case that he has in his mind the story of Daniel in Daniel chapter 3 when he speaks about Jesus with the fiery eyes. Remember that story of Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, telling Nebuchadnezzar, we will not serve you, we serve the one true God. It doesn't matter what you do to us. You can persecute us, you can take things away from us, you can make it costly to be a servant of God in this place, but we will not bow our knee and worship you, Nebuchadnezzar. If you want to throw us in that furnace, you can do it. And Nebuchadnezzar heated it up. And he threw the three friends into the furnace. And do you remember what happened? Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace. And he saw the three men in the furnace. And he saw a fourth man like the Son of God. Protecting them. Preserving them. Keeping them. Jesus is drawing our attention and saying, This is who you get. You get... The second person of the Trinity, I give myself to you. You get one who has fiery eyes of flame. One who will protect you and who will keep you and who will save you to the utter end. And notice he also mentions he's one who has feet like burnished bronze. The word that's used here for bronze is an extremely unique Greek word. It actually shows up nowhere else in all of Greek literature. It's almost certain that what the word here that's being used by Jesus and by John writing it down had a very specific connotation for the bronze guild in Thyatira. When this was read in the Greek, when they were reading it in the Greek, that word would show up and everybody knew what Jesus was referencing. And what he's saying is, I give myself to you. I am the true and the better ultimate God of all bronze. I have bronze feet, I am immovable, I am strong, I am stable, and I am secure. What's the, what's the Lord calling you to go through and to endure? How are you being tempted to give in and to give up and perhaps to go along with unbiblical and unfaithful beliefs and practices? What, what are the things that you're tempted to compromise on, to accommodate, in order that your life might be easier, more comfortable? What's the, what's the cost that you're experiencing as one of God's dearly loved, treasured, purified people? Jesus is speaking to you today through His Word, and He's saying, Hold fast. Because I'm worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is with us. Because He will enable us to persevere. And He gives Himself to us through His death on the cross to pay for our sins and to grant us His righteousness. And no matter what cost we are called to make in this life, no matter what difficulty we are called to endure, He is worth it. The promises that He gives to us as His people are worth it. Hold fast. Let's pray together.
Father, on the one hand, we read these words about this church that was that were written so long ago in a place that's so far away, people that we think that we have so little in, in contact with. And yet, Father, as you do in your word, you bring this to us and we see ways that we are no different than these people. We struggle with some of the very same things they were struggling with. I pray, help us. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, help us to hold fast to these truths that we have held. We need your help. We can't do it on our own. And so we pray that through the work of your Spirit, you would give us the strength that we need to endure and persevere to the end, no matter what it is, no matter what cost you have given us to make in this life. Help these promises of what John has shared with this church that are also true for us in Christ. Help these promises to ring in our ears this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In Matthew chapter 26, we read Matthew's account of Jesus gathering the disciples together just before he would go to the cross. And Matthew tells us that as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper, this table that we come to at the conclusion of our service today, is a picture for us. It's a picture that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough to redeem you. And in your own mind, you may be playing the tape recorder of... Tape recorder, that sounded like from the 80s, right? The, the MP3s and MP4s of, of this past week. Yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but I thought this. I said this. And this table points you away from your sin and says, Jesus is enough. He is enough. Come to Him Put your faith in Him. Rest in Him. Jesus is enough to cover all your sins. Past, present, and even future. He is enough through His body, through His blood, through His sacrifice on the cross. As you put your faith in Him, your sins are forgiven and you are a purified people because of the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is also enough not only to redeem us, but He's enough to satisfy us. Why do we look anywhere else? Why do we look at all the things that we look at to try to give us contentment and satisfaction in this life? Jesus comes to us at this table and he says, I am enough. Find your full peace and satisfaction in me. So I would just ask you this morning, even as we begin our service, have you come to Jesus? Are you resting in him? Do you believe in him? Have you put your faith in him? Have you publicly declared that faith at this church or another church that believes God's word is true? If so, then as the trays are coming around, eat, drink, be reminded of what Jesus says, that he's enough. He's enough to cover all of your sins and to give you the righteousness that you need. He's enough to fully and completely satisfy you as you rest in him. 
So let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord to use this table to strengthen us in our faith and encourage us as we leave today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before you and we're so thankful for this means of grace, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Forgive us for taking it lightly. Forgive us for coming to it uh, without thinking about these wonderful truths of your word. We pray that you would fill us with this truth. Fill us with these, these reminders of Jesus being enough. Help us once again to have a faith that leans and leans into him. That we look to him. That we look to his completed work. Help us, Father, to that end, we pray. As we eat and drink, strengthen us through the work of your Holy Spirit and send us out that we would truly be people holding fast this week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.